it's a disaster right now. And everybody's really concerned about putting a kid into that disaster. We should have always been concerned about putting that kid into that disaster. Not just now because they might get COVID-19, but always because they might get beaten up, they might get raped, their chances of success upon release go down, and because it's dramatically racially and ethnically disparate. Those should have been our concerns every single day, and now we add to that pile the pandemic. Uh, so this wasn't an all-fired good idea before, and we don't want to get back to that normal. You're listening to Works of Justice, a podcast by Penn America. On any given day in the U.S., nearly 60,000 youth under the age of 18 are incarcerated in both jails and prisons. As COVID-19 continues to spread through the criminal justice system, advocates are calling for the release of more minors in detention. To learn more about the particular challenges COVID-19 poses for incarcerated youth, my fellow intern at PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program, Liz Fiore, called up one of the strongest leading advocates in the juvenile justice field, Vincent Schiraldi. Vincent is currently a senior research scientist at Columbia School of Social Work and director of the Columbia Justice Lab. His history in the field is expansive and impressive. Vincent founded the policy think tank, the Justice Policy Institute, and even worked in government as director of the Juvenile Corrections in Washington, D.C., and then as commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation, where he pioneered efforts at community-based alternatives to incarceration in New York City and Washington, D.C. Most recently, Shiraldi served as senior advisor to the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. All of this history has gained Vincent a national reputation as a fearless reformer, Liz had the opportunity to ask him about America's youth incarceration problem and how this pandemic is further exposing it. They also talked about ways to support incarcerated youth by getting involved in advocacy efforts. My name is Kate Camel. I've been joining you for the last few weeks, but I'm happy to turn the conversation over to Liz, bringing her brilliant, thoughtful, and hard work behind the scenes this past month to the forefront. We're glad you're joining us again for PEN America's new rapid response series, Temperature Check. COVID-19 behind bars. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm joined by Vincent. Um, I'm so glad we could sit down and talk about justice-involved youth. Um, I'm going to start off with some questions, and I could imagine as we talk, maybe we'll get into some side tangents about things we're really passionate about. I know I'm passionate about youth justice, having worked in it just for like a year, and it really made me realize how important um, working with youth is for an overall uh, holistic view, including like in schools and like I'm sure you know about like the school to prison uh, pipeline and all that stuff like that. So I'm really interested in youth, particularly youth justice, and I know you are as well. So I think like a good starting question would be, um, I know that you were um, involved in uh, the DOC and working as a director. So then you transitioned into academia. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about like how you started off with your career and where you are now? Like what led you to where? Yeah, and I want to uh, I want to just start by dedicating this to a, a friend and colleague who passed away this week. Uh, his name is Paul Demuro, and uh, in the '60s and '70s, Paul worked with a mentor of mine, Jerry Miller, 
and they closed every juvenile facility in the state of Massachusetts during a, about a two-year period, uh, sent all the kids home, except 60 kids total, you know, in two 30-bed facilities were in small facilities. Um, so it was really the first kind of major deinstitutionalization of juveniles in America, and Paul was a mentor of mine and, and stuck with me all these years and helped me out when I ran Youth Corrections myself. Uh, so I just want to dedicate this to him. Um, I actually, you know, I started working in a group home when I was an undergraduate at Binghamton State University in upstate New York, and then heard Jerry Miller, who I just mentioned, speak about closing all youth prisons down in, in Massachusetts. And uh, I went to work for Jerry. You know, I sort of chased him out of the classroom. I was enthralled by it. This was 1981, probably. And uh, so I, I uh, you know, so that's the early days, really, of mass incarceration. I think probably mid to late 70s is when most people say mass incarceration started and, uh, and, and grew every year between then and 2009. So, uh, you know, I heard Jerry talk about how he was able to let all the kids out of these institutions and provide them with kind of services and supports. And I said, okay, this is what I want to do. Uh, and so I worked for, I, I worked for nonprofits from then, from 1981, all the way till 2005. And I, I never really thought I was going to go into government. Uh, but then the uh, Juvenile Justice Agency in Washington, D.C. was under uh, court order. There was litigation over terrible, horrible conditions, staff beating the kids up, sexually assaulting the kids, rats and cockroaches crawling upon the kids at night, awful, awful, awful hair-raising stuff. And um, surprisingly, because I was a big critic of it as in my nonprofit organization, the Justice Policy Institute, uh, the mayor offered me the job to run the place. And so it was one of those put your money where your mouth is moments, and I decided to uh, to do it. Hmm. Um. So you briefly talked about your own nonprofit. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and why you started it and what it does today? Yeah, uh, I've actually started two nonprofits. One is called the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. That's in San Francisco. And that provided a combination of direct services and advocacy and research. So we put out these kind of high impact studies showing racial discrimination in the system or how much more money we're spending on prisons than higher education, you know, things like that. And uh, we also were providing direct services, some of which were funded by the government. So that became a problem because the government was not very happy about criticizing somebody uh, who it was funding. And so uh, I split off and created the Justice Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. And, you know, back then it was not easy to get foundation money to do advocacy around criminal justice work. Nobody, there wasn't this groundswell of both advocates and formerly incarcerated people and philanthropy. There's, the pickings were very slim if you wanted to be an advocate only. And so, you know, that's fine. You know, that's, that's what we sign up for in this, in this field. Uh, but that's what the Justice Policy Institute was. And it's still, both of them are still around. Uh, but the Justice Policy Institute never provided any services because it wanted to be able to say whatever it wanted to be able to say 
without worrying that this governor or that corrections administrator was going to enact reprisals. Um, you also touched on a reason why you got into the DOC is because you were so uh, knowledgeable about the harsh living conditions of prisons and jails. And I think that especially with everything going on right now with COVID and the spreading that uh, has led to a lot of reforms in terms of like releases of people. Um, how do you think that COVID in particular is affecting youth detentions? Because youth detention is obviously a little bit different than adult prisons. Do you think that there's like a unique um, factor in youth detentions and how it's being affected during COVID? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a similar nightmare uh, in a lot of ways to the adult system with with a couple of variations, but I think they're they're they share a lot more than they don't share. Um, you know, when when the pandemic started to become obvious, uh, I got together with a bunch of current and former youth correctional administrators, and we issued a statement saying, "Reduce the number of people you're locking up." close the front door uh, and, you know, create a COVID plan. I guess there were many more elements to it, that, but that was basically it. And also provide supports to families uh, when their kids come home. And we issued that. And the reason we issued it is because every one of us, the first thing you do if you have a rumble in these places, you start imagining what's going to happen. And here's the way it's going to play out and it is playing out in several places. The virus enters your system somehow, some, somehow, some way, through staff, through a new kid that comes in, through a family member, through maintenance staff, you know, however. And everybody starts to freak out. Staff start to get sick or call in sick because they're afraid of getting sick or because one of their family members is sick. And now you've got an already thin staffing complement that gets thinner. Programs get closed down because you don't want people coming in that might be sick. School gets closed. Visitation gets closed. Volunteers get closed. So now the kids are already in a stressful situation because they're already in a juvenile correctional system in America. So let just every day start stressful. And now you up the stress many fold. And you have to make this decision. Do I lock the kids down or do I let them out into a congregate setting where there is no friggin' way they're going to stay six feet away from each other. And there's no way my staff, who already didn't keep this place hygienic before this, are going to clean it enough. And so that's the situation that person after person after person finds themselves in. So that's why we kind of issued that statement somewhat early on. Because what we were trying to say is, you know, the... Uh, Doctor that uh, is the head physician at Rikers Island, Dr. McDonald, said, a storm is coming. We need to get ready for it. Right. That was his that was his sort of clarion call, which I thought was a beautiful way of putting it. And so I got to thinking about storms when they are coming. What do you tell your citizenry? Get out there now. Get the plywood up and the hammer and nails and board up the windows. You don't say, wait till the wind is blowing at 100 miles an hour and then get the boards and hammer and nails out. And that's what we're trying to say to juvenile correctional administrators, to politicians, you know, governors, mayors, county council. Prepare for this now. Bar a bunch of people from coming into this facility and release them. Anybody on a misdemeanor, anybody on a probation violation, 
anybody that's got 30, 60, 90 days left to serve on their sentence, get them the hell out of there. Nothing's going to happen in the next 90 days in your juvenile correctional facility that is going to change the life of this young person, except maybe getting COVID. So get them out of your facility right now in big numbers. Don't do a bunch of individualized blah, 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 which is what everybody always wants to do. And then with whoever's left, do the individualized planning. Because, yes, we get it. Some of the kids will be, in your view, too dangerous to release. But not the misdemeanor. It's not the probation violators. not the kids that failed the program. Not the kids that are coming out in 90 days anyway. All of them pretty much are not too dangerous for you to be worrying about. So get them out of your facility. And then start to take a very careful look at anybody who's left, especially anybody with asthma. Tons of kids in my facility had asthma. And we know that having asthma makes the, the symptoms of COVID worse or any other medically vulnerable kids. Very carefully start looking at them. Very carefully start doing release plans with prosecutors, your judges, your probation people. Um, but step one is get big numbers out. So in terms of the kids that are released, um, have you or people you know, organizations that you know of, um, have there been any like solid aftercare programs? Because I know in talking to um, some people I was connected with at my previous job, which is a youth justice center in Staten Island, um, that the kids being released from uh, like Horizons or other detention centers, that normally an aftercare plan takes quite a bit of while to plan, like six months prior to release, you start thinking about aftercare plans and like what's going to go on. Um, do you know anything about either uh, your nonprofit or other people that are um, helping with this kind of relief? You know, I've, I've heard that there are a bunch of groups actually that have gotten together on this and that a lot of youth correctional administrators are starting to sort of amp up their release planning. Um, we should have all been doing this the first day the kid arrived. The first day the kid arrived, you should start thinking, okay, six months from now, nine months from now, where's this kid going to go? What's that going to look like? What kind of aftercare plan will there be? So shame on you if you already haven't been doing that. But one of the things I've been thinking is, you know, we're all wishing life was back to normal. I wish I was sitting in a room with you doing this interview. I wish I could go to a bar tonight. I wish I could go to a Met game, right? And I wish kids could go back to school. But there are some places where we don't want stuff to go back to normal. And mass incarceration is one of them. We don't want to fill these facilities back up. We don't want to do lousy aftercare plans for these kids. And so we should really be looking at this moment, not just as an opportunity to keep young people safe, but as an opportunity to improve stuff we should have been improving anyway. It's a disaster right now, and everybody's really concerned about putting a kid into that disaster. We should have always been concerned about putting that kid into that disaster. Not just now because they might get COVID-19, but always because they might get beaten up, they might get raped, their chances of success upon release go down, and because it's dramatically racially and ethnically disparate. Those should have been our concerns every single day, and now we add to that pile the pandemic. Uh, so this wasn't an all-fired good idea before, and we don't want to get back to that normal. 
Right. And I, I think what you're saying is, like, 100% accurate. You're really hitting the money on that one where, like, I hate that it took a pandemic for people to kind of be at this level of, like, a quick reaction for reform. Like, if mass incarceration, like you said, was starting uh, to be prominent in the 60s and 70s, it's a shame that it took so long to get to this point. But at the same time, it's kind of like this was kind of like a kick out the door to, you know, start this type of stuff. Um, how do you think that this pandemic is affecting the court systems in terms of youth um, and their timelines? Like, obviously, kids that are released, we hope that there's no uh, reoffending and that their time in the court system is done. What about kids that are still in youth detention or that were, you know, on probation or whatever? How do you think it's affecting their court timeline? Yeah, it's different in different places. So some courts have shut down. So if you're detained, you might be just stuck sitting there. Other courts have sort of done rocket dockets where they all get on, you know, the computer and they they resolve a bunch of cases consensually. So some kids might be moving more quickly. But again, it's something that needs to be looked at, not just now, but going into the future. If we could move this kid's case quickly to get them out of detention when there was an emergency, why can't we do it all the time? Because if it's my kid, it's always an emergency. Right, of course. And uh, how do you think that would kind of be implemented? Like, I know it's great to say all these things that we wish would be done, but how do you think from your government experience this actually could be done, that kids could be released more often, that they could, you know, have the rocket docket, you know, all these things that seem so great now and they weren't in place before? How do you think on a, you know, like administrative level, this can be pushed to be, you know, something that's not just for now, but in the future and stays? Sure. So a lot of what I'm hearing people doing right now is looking through the lists of everybody who's incarcerated, by the way, on the adult and juvenile side, both, and um, uh, taking a look at everybody's uh, circumstances, what crime they're in for, what their prior record like, uh, are they likely to get sick, and then um, uh, uh, trying to make decisions about who can get out, right? And so the way that's typically playing itself out is the defense attorneys take a look at it, they make motions, they bring those motions to a special court, a special court is set up to rapidly hear that, the district attorneys are open to hearing it and are agreeing to more of those than they did in the past. None of that has to go away. You can just literally keep that very same process going after the pandemic's over and the courts reopen just to have people constantly relooking at the kids in detention and saying, who of these kids can go home? The good news is, even though that absorbs resources, that means a judge, a public defender, and a prosecutor has to kind of sit and do that. At the same time, it's costing about a quarter million dollars a year in most places to put a kid in juvenile detention. So if you can close a facility or even a wing of a facility, you can more than pay for that court. And so that's the way we got to start thinking. As we've gotten these numbers down, Casey Foundation, the Andy Casey Foundation released a report today showing a 26% decline in number of kids in detention in sites that responded to a survey they issued, right? And that's in a month. That's in one month. So if we could get it down like that and keep it down like that, that has to result in cost savings that can be used not only 
to finance that process, but also to finance programs for these young people and help them when they get out. Right. And I think that's a perfect segue um, into my next question. So I had worked at a um, youth court where we used restorative justice practices and community-based programs to keep kids out of detention centers and out of the court system. And it's it has like, as you probably know, like a way better rate, you know, through rehabilitation and things like that than just uh, being incarcerated. So how do you think that with COVID, um, this is going to affect legislation in terms of restorative justice, community-based programs, and things of that nature? Do you think they'll be more prominent? Do you think that, uh, you know, judges will be more open to, you know, like a- an after-school program with a mentor as opposed to being in a group home for a week? You know what I mean? Yep. I think this is a really good time for advocates to start asking that exact question. So when we emerge from this, what are the public policies and what are the practices we want to start urging the legislature to pass and administrators to enact, by the way? It's, tons of this can be done today administratively. I, When I ran the Washington, D.C. system, I had release power over the kids. I was probation commissioner in New York, and I had the power when kids came to detention to send them home, right? Those are enormous powers, and nobody needed to pass a bill to allow me to do that stuff. So I sent a ton of kids home. So advocates should be looking to legislation, but they should also be looking, what can our administrators do within their current power to keep these facilities with a low population? My bet is that what's going to happen now is a bunch of people are going to retire from your city and state systems. They're scared to death of catching this virus in the facility. Several staff members have died. Several kids have died. So they're legitimately scared. I'm not putting them down for that. I'd be scared because they're in there with, with everybody. There's never enough equipment. All those conditions I described for the kids... Staff is living through all those conditions as well. And then they're going home every night and hugging their husbands and wives and their kids. And they're worried, right? So my bet is a lot of people are going to leave this field and find other jobs. And that might not be all a bad thing. What we should be saying is don't replace these people. Replace these people with restorative justice programs. Replace these people with mentorship programs that formerly incarcerated people can staff. Like shift the the system from this institution prison-based system to a truly community-based system where members of the community are co-designing the kinds of things they need to help their kids survive and thrive in their neighborhoods. Because trust me, they have way more of a stake in those kids making it in Brownsville than the guys and gals working at the correctional facility do. I think that's a genius idea. Um, I hope people listening to this <laughs> take that into consideration. Um, so I think we just have like one or two more questions for you. Um, so our program always gets requests for volunteer efforts and what our listeners or readers can do to be active in uh, social justice and particularly criminal justice. I know it's kind of hard um, to volunteer on like an administrative or like uh, legislative 
level, um, but it, do you know of any organizations or even your own that um, have any volunteer um, efforts that people could be a part of? And also on the topic of, um, like you're saying, community-based programs, do you know of any that you could mention that people could look into and how to get this kind of like wheel going? Sure. Um, Community Connections for Youth in the Bronx is one of my favorites. It's run by a guy named Ruben Austria, and he really is trying to push this kind of thing where people, uh, where communities figure out the best way uh, for their kids to stay home. I I like the Youth Advocates Program. It's yapinc.org, and that is uh, located in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but they have programs all around the country. and they just really intensely work with young people to help keep them out of institutions and in communities and back home. Uh, the Arches Mentoring Program uh, and Transformative Mentoring in general really very specifically looks to formerly incarcerated people to mentor young people so that they don't you know, sort of travel the same path that those uh, formerly incarcerated people have traveled and they have has been some really good research on it by the Urban Institute uh, that found much lower rates of reconviction for kids that were part of the Arches program. So that's kind of cool. And then, but if you're if you're interested in advocacy to try to make system change, Youth First is bar none one of the best organizations in the country. Uh, it's run by a woman named Liz Ryan, and they have. Uh, uh, worked very carefully and closely with advocates in, I think they're up to nine states now, trying to get all of their youth prisons closed and uh, um, uh, money transferred from the system into the communities. Uh, it's Youth First. I can't remember what their email address is, but you just Google Youth First. Yeah, I actually, before um, coming on to interview you last week, I was supposed to interview Liz and I had um, been excited about that. I was researching, uh, yeah, the No Kids in Prison movement and it seems like a really awesome organization. I'm glad that you mentioned that. <laughs> I think that's actually their uh, email address. No, I think it's actually nokidsinprison.org. So mm. that you reminded me. Okay, um, I think we got a lot of insight through this conversation. I'm really excited for our newsletter to come out that we could possibly uh, plug these organizations for people to follow up with, click the the links and see what they could do to help. Um, I guess, is there anything else that you would want to say um, to the people listening at home? <laughs> yeah, um, sometimes I feel like we make this too complicated. Um, In America, we have a really excellent juvenile justice system. That's the juvenile justice system that kicks into gear every time a white middle-class kid gets in trouble. And they get in trouble. They do. I was one of them, and I got in trouble. But all sorts of resources get brought to bear. Programs, staunch advocacy, people fill the courtroom to try to keep that kid out of a debilitating locked institution because it's felt that kid has a future, that boy or girl has a future. And we want to build towards that future with the expectation that they're going to mess up when they're young, but they're going to get over that and they're going to want to live a a good, decent life. They're going to want to go to college, want to get jobs, want to get married, and you don't want to 
mess that up, right? So, so we, we don't have to invent something new. We just have to apply that to everybody equally. I don't want the white kids to suffer in the youth prisons and live crappy lives. I want the black and Latino and, and Native American kids to be able to get the same kind of care and concern that any of us would want for our child if they got in trouble with the law. And so when you're thinking about, Jesus, it's complicated. What do we do next? It's not complicated. It's what any of us would want to do if our kid got in trouble with the law. And the rest is, frankly, details. I think that's really excellent. And you're quite honestly a genius in my eyes. I know for some people it might seem so simple that like this would be, you know, everyone's train of thought, but unfortunately it's not everyone's train of thought as I'm sure you've seen working in the system for a long time. Um, but I'm thankful that there are people like you vouching for um, some positive changes and I appreciate the work that you do and I appreciate you letting us interview you today and I think that this is going to be an awesome podcast and yeah I just want to say thank you thank you I used to get locked they all screaming free VI but nobody's sending no mail no stamps no packages Think the streets was all I knew When karma came around I turned a straight wheelchair Me from life It ain't a game Find a new route To make it out the streets don't love nobody Gotta find a new route To make it out Man cause the streets don't love nobody Used to think it was all good But I found out the hard way the streets don't love nobody Used to think the streets Was all I knew But the streets don't love nobody Nah the streets don't love nobody you just heard Open Doors Reality Poets, Streets Don't Love Nobody, which is both a message to the youth and a timely reminder to stay home. Open Doors is an arts and justice initiative on Roosevelt Island, based in the long-term care facility where many members live. The Open Doors Reality Poets are Black and Latino men who use wheelchairs largely due to street violence and who work to save lives through art. Appearing as the Reality Poets, members educate young people in underserved communities about the consequences of running the streets letting kids know that guns lead not only to jail or death, but also to life in the chair. Right now, these artists are living in a long-term care facility currently being appropriated for COVID-19 overflow and are forced to be locked in with positive patients. We encourage you to find out more about their work and join the conversation with them on their website, opendoorsnyc.org. This podcast is part of our weekly temperature check series, which also includes original reportage by currently incarcerated writers and links to other journalism and advocacy efforts. Temperature check can be found through our Works of Justice portal at pen.org slash works of justice. This episode was researched and hosted by Liz Fiore, with support from myself, Kate Camel, mixed by Robert Pollock and produced by Kate Meissner for PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program. Thanks for listening. <laughs>